Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, TraumaCast series. I'm your host, Dr. Bob Aksarani, Associate Professor of Surgery at the George Washington University. Joining us today is Dr. Brian Cotton, Associate Professor of Surgery at the University of Texas in Houston. Dr. Cotton has expertise and original research in a wide variety of topics within trauma and critical care surgery. Today, we are going to speak with him regarding massive transfusion protocols and his article entitled, Predefined Massive Transfusion Protocols Are Associated with a Reduction in Organ Failure and Post-Injury Complications, which appeared in the Journal of Trauma, Volume 66, Issue 1, pages 41 to 49, 2009. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Cotton. Thank you, Dr. Cerrone. Let's start by asking you to describe if and why a massive transfusion protocol is a good thing and how one can go about writing and implementing such a protocol. That's a great question. And I, I think regardless of where you stand on the debates of a red cell to plasma to platelet ratio of one to one to one, one to one to two, one to one to three, wherever you stand on that, the absolute truth is that a massive transfusion patient overwhelms the capabilities of the team, both from trauma, from anesthesia, ER, all the way up to the blood bank. It is an overwhelming process. It's a quite chaotic environment, and the request must be rapid and, you know, quite a large volume of products we're asking for. So you... The need for it, I think, uh, speaks for itself. And again, how you design it or what your ingredients are, what your cocktail is within this protocol is up to that institution, up to the people in that institution, to what they believe uh, is the appropriate products. However, again, I think you've got to have a protocol in place for such processes, because if you don't, you will, you can't give what you don't have. And you've got to have these things prepared. These things take time to get prepared. So you've got to have a certain level of readiness, whether it be You've got a certain number of plasma ready, a certain number of red cells ready that are immediately available for release. And then you have the blood bank work on a type and screen process to convert them over to type specific and compatible products. But you've got to at least have a certain amount of products ready to go from the get-go. And again, that's where a massive transfusion protocol uh, comes into place. And I don't know that even though the majority of our uh, research has been aimed at trauma resuscitations, uh, several authors have looked at it in non-trauma, in uh, rupture triple A's, uh, bad hepatobiliary cases, things like that, where they can also overwhelm the blood bank with their requests. And just to clarify, by ready in regards to plasma, we're talking about stored thawed plasma, not frozen that requires 30 minutes to then thaw. That is absolutely correct. And where you put that is up to you. Uh, some places keep it in the emergency department. Some majority, however, keep it in the blood bank. But even the blood banks need to have that plasma, certain numbers of plasma ready to go for immediate release. And then once again, they get the type specific, they can convert them over to the actual uh, type specific uh, thawed, pla or, yeah, thawed plasma that's type specific. And we're going to get into the meat of the uh, articles that you have written about. But just as a brief overview, how do I convince my blood banker to do this? So, you know, we always make jokes that, um, you know, dead people don't use a lot of blood. And, and, and as much as that is true, at the same time, patients who get a good resuscitation, we think use less blood. 
So what we did when we developed ours was to go to our blood bank with a problem. We were showing them a need for a massive transfusion protocol because we were overwhelming and we would end up using a considerable amount of blood products. Our hypothesis when we approached the blood bank was based on some anecdotal data and some retrospective military data showing that by using more higher ratioed products and using them very much more proximal in the resuscitation that you were actually able to reduce overall blood products. So that's one of the things. It's, it is all about the patient, but it's all about the consumption within the, the blood bank. So it has to be twofold. We're going to help the patient. We are going to improve their outcome. But at, at another outcome improvement, we are going to see a reduction in overall product use. And that was not necessarily our promise, but that was what our goal was and what we, our belief system was. And that's really how we got at least our blood bank, who also was ahead of transfusion medicine, to get them on board with moving forward. And that, that's, that was the key. Once we got uh, Pompey Young, who again was the head of the transfusion medicine uh, committee, as well as the head of transfusion medicine in our blood banks at Vanderbilt, once we got her on board, things just progressed. Um, that, and that was also a key, was taking the trauma surgeon. Uh, I'll tell you, uh, kind of a lot of behind the scenes to that was uh, there was a lot of resistance within my own division, within trauma, to moving forward with uh, mass transfusion protocol development. Uh, they felt that it was a waste of products, consumption time, it was not cost effective. And it wasn't until the second or third time I had been shot down that I said, well, I really believe in this enough. It was how I was trained at Penn. And I've looked at the military data, and it makes sense. So my option at that time was to join the blood bank, sit in the background, the back of the seats as, a, as the trauma representative to the blood bank committee, and once my opportunity came up to discuss it, brought it forward, presented it, and got everyone on board and actually uh, progressed pretty nicely after that. But that's, that's the key is, one, getting it through your blood bank, your transfusion committee, having the transfusion medicine specialist on board, and then getting all the other interested parties involved. Because if you don't get them involved, not only are you going to hurt someone's feelings, but more importantly, and most importantly, uh, you're going to not foresee obstacles in the road that they would see on their, in their geographic uh, areas as well as their specialties. All right. <clears throat> So with that in mind, and kind of converting the blood bank from a uh, pull to a push mentality, as, as the saying has gone in a couple of articles, let's talk about Borgman's article. Borgman published an article in Vox Sanguinis uh, in 2011 um, where they looked at the impact of a trauma exsanguination protocol. They found a mortality benefit with a one-to-one -one transfusion strategy when the strategy was used in patients at risk for hemorrhage, not necessarily hemorrhaging, but at high risk for hemorrhage, which they defined as a trauma-attached uh, score, trauma-associated uh, exsanguination score greater than 15. However, in that same study, if your attached score was less than 15, in other words, you were at low risk for massive exsanguination, in fact, the incidence of multi-organ system failure was higher. So how does one go about judiciously using a trauma exsanguination protocol to maximize uh, benefit, in other words, minimize mortality, but not hurt the patients? That's an excellent question, and I don't know if we have all the answers to that. Um, I can tell you several studies are out there that are similar to the Borgman that suggest in the 
patients that don't get master infusion though that are, are not as ill when they get these higher ratios they are definitely uh, at risk of, of getting problems they've been shown also as well in vascular populations, surgical ICU populations, and patients who get plasma uh, that's not necessarily as part of a protocol or, or, or what have you, or not part of a hemorrhage process, but more of a resuscitation process that they do, uh, they have worse outcomes. Then there are some studies out there that actually support giving these products in patients that are not actually master transfusion. I think this one though hits on the appropriate question, which is who is at risk? Because I, if you use this absolute cutoff of 10 units, like who got a massive transfusion, I'm not surprised to find that those who don't get a massive transfusion in those studies, <clears throat> but get one to one to one, uh, do poorer. Uh, those patients are dying quicker and they're not necessarily uh, uh, the sickest of the sick. Uh, and, and are the sickest of the sick. However, in the Borgen paper, what they hit on really nicely was if you're predicted to get a massive transfusion and we give you these products, you do better. That doesn't necessarily mean they actually hit it, uh, hit that 10-unit that magic mark of the massive transfusion. In fact, if you really believe in your protocol and you really believe these products work, you don't necessarily hit 10 units. You might actually uh, get them uh, to a lower unit. In fact, we've talked about this. We've just recently completed and are in the process of uh, putting out our first several manuscripts from this, but we just completed a 10-center prospective observational DOD-funded study um, of North American trauma centers. And what we found was that uh, a lot of our centers aren't hitting 10 units anymore and getting these technical massive transfusions. And it's not that they're not getting sick patients anymore. It's that at least our belief system and our resuscitation strategies are better. And so a lot of our patients are stopping at eight units of red cells or nine or six. And when, back when we did a recent audit at our hospital, uh, we have not published this, but just a recent audit, we noted that almost half of our massive transfusion protocol activations over the last 18 months, almost half of them received less than 10 units. The, the median, I think, was eight units of red cells, eight units of plasma. Over 24 hours. Over 24 hours. So they're getting that first box or two of the coolers for massive transfusion, and then hemostasis is achieved. Factor seven? Factor seven. So that's another interesting uh, component. So I will tell you early on at Vanderbilt, when we were developing this process, we were using factor seven not infrequently. As we started, and we were also using cryoprecipitate not infrequently, as we started to utilize and get higher ratios and, and more, not, not just the higher ratios, but earlier achievement of whatever ratio we were going to get and earlier delivery of these products, we didn't seem to be getting into a spiral where factor seven or cryo were more readily identified as being needed. So I can tell you that both our papers, uh, Terrence O'Keefe, when he was at Parkland, put one out that the, the, these cryoprecipitate, these factor seven, these what some people would consider adjuncts through uh, coagulation are reduced in a matured master transfusion protocol because you're getting on top of the bleeding quicker and you're not spiraling downward. Again, plasma contains much less uh, fibrinogen than cryoprecipitate, but it has enough. Uh, it has enough as long as you're staying on top of it, it would appear. But once you get into this uh, downward spiral and this vicious coagulopathy, that's where things like factor seven are going to hopefully bail you out. That's where things like cryoprecipitate are hopefully going to help uh, restore things. And I can tell you now in my practice in Houston, 
uh, the handful of cases where we've actually used factor seven in cryo have been truly in the ones that are overwhelmed, even the massive transfusion protocol, that are bleeding so viciously uh, that it's hard to get control of them. Uh, and majority of these, for you know, anecdotally at least, the majority of these are delayed recognitions, which I think is also critical to the whole process, which, which is what you kind of got into with the whole Borgman paper. How do you identify them? How you identify them has to be done in a real-time fashion. It can't wait, in my opinion, for conventional labs. Uh, there are certain studies that come out. The TASH one, which was uh, what that score was based on, the TASH was out of Germany. <clears throat> the uh, transfusion is an associated severity hemorrhage uh, score, as well as uh, McLaughlin score. Marty Schreiber had one, and there's an ETS score out of Australia, um, uh, the emergency transfusion score. So these are all excellent scores, and they all are going after the same thing. A rapid identification of patients that need massive transfusion. Even if they don't get massive transfusion, they need a massive transfusion. When we were looking at these in my time at Vanderbilt, we were trying to incorporate them into our algorithms because what we were seeing is that our massive transfusion outcomes were worse if that phone call to activate our massive transfusion protocol was made in the OR versus the ER. If it was made before that 15 minutes up and that patient was wheeled emergently upstairs, or if it was made even on arrival to the OR, the mortality differences were overwhelmingly different. And that was presented in uh, a couple years ago at East, and it was actually published in Journal of Trauma. And what that found, again, is it just a delay in that 10-minute window, 15 minutes, in that time frame caused a tremendous increase in mortality. And this is delayed to administration of FFP. Yes. Because everyone's getting the RBCs. Correct. The RBCs were already available at our center in the, in the ER. We were not, you know, not resuscitating them. We were aggressively resuscitating, moving them upstairs, getting them to the OR. But if we hadn't made that initial contact with the blood bank, and that doesn't even mean they physically got it in the ER. Almost all of our patients with the Master Infusion Protocol had that phone call made from the ER right after they got an OR room contacted with the OR supervisor so they were wheeling out and getting the products ready and we were able to get them and have them ready waiting for us in the operating theater. If they weren't waiting for us in the operating theater because we had delayed that phone call, the mortality went up dramatically. And that was what did not force our hand but encouraged us to develop something to get the faculty uniformly activating the master transfusion protocol from the ER. And when we looked at all the scoring systems, they're all, if you look at them, they all perform wonderfully. The issue that we had with some of the ones that were in existence at the time, including the TASH, is that because we did not, at least at the time I was at Vanderbilt, had good point-of-care testing, we weren't able to generate a lot of the variables that were very critical to generating a TASH score, a McLaughlin score, things like that. So we developed our own score, the ABC score, which was pure physiology and ultrasound mechanism-based, things that you could get done in the primary survey, hence the ABC. You can get it done all during the ABCs, get that probe on, see if there's fluid, is it a penetrating mechanism, yes or no, are they hypotensive or they tachycardic? Pretty simple demographic things. And when we line those up against TASH, against McLaughlin, they all performed about the same. And for us, that was actually a very encouraging sign because that meant that we could eliminate having to wait for labs, we can eliminate having to calculate any injury severity scores or any need for any CAT scans and go directly off of a, the primary survey and make that determination for calling for the massive transfusion protocol. And so I think that is, like the uh, Borgman paper uh, uh, visited, critical. 
And I'll tell you that we, you know, prior to that actually coming out, we would never uh, move forward to publishing it, but I, we actually took the ABC score and applied it to three different databases, uh, one in Houston, one at Shock Trauma, and one at um, Vanderbilt. We applied those, but never, again, never finished this up and submitted it, and found very similar findings, that the patients predicted to get a massive transfusion. If they received the higher ratios, they did better. If they were not predicted, they actually either had no difference in outcome or did worse if they got higher ratios. So let's let's go into that a little bit and bring up some uh, some other controversial issues. Pretty much all of the data you quoted thus far is retrospective, although admittedly the signal is the same from study to study, and that that certainly counts even in a retrospective environment. The two prospective studies we should talk about are, of course, Snyder's paper and Scalia's paper both of which suggested that there was, in fact, no mortality benefit to a one-to-one trauma exsanguination protocol. I think you might have already alluded to some of the issues with lead time bias and survival bias in your observations, but let's, let's talk about that and how do you merge your observations with those two studies. So those studies, both of them, uh, discuss, allude to something called survival bias. In fact, um, the Memphis group has actually followed up recently with a similar paper uh, to the Snyder paper discussing survival bias. And survival bias, just to kind of put that in, in perspective, let's talk about that real quick. Survival bias is the argument of are the patients that getting are getting one-to-one-to-one doing better because one-to-one works, or are they doing better because they live long enough to achieve one-to-one-to-one? And that is an absolute excellent question, and it absolutely makes sense. So if you look at some of the studies, uh, our, our study, uh, our studies out of Vanderbilt, our studies from uh, Houston, the studies from uh, uh, Juan Duchesne at Tulane and other uh, places that have found a benefit from it, several of them, at least with uh, my, mine and Juan Duchesne's, we eliminated people who did not receive a massive transfusion and did not live long enough to at least get to, out of the operating room. So we were able to relieve some of that survival bias that way. And that was one thing that some, some of these institutions have not taken into consideration. The other thing is that both our institutions, while not having immediately one-to-one-to-one, had higher ratios immediately available through a massive transfusion process. So we were able to deliver products in a timely fashion and eliminate that gap of an availability, which should address the survival bias that Snyder, again, very eloquently brought up. Now, let's get back to the Snyder paper. Uh, it's one of these cases, and, and we touch on this um, in, in, in an editorial, actually, in, in this month's transfusion, there is a, a paper from uh, Scalia's group talking just about this transfusion plasma ratio plasma deficit just came out this month. This month being uh, uh, September 2011. Yes, I'm sorry, in transfusion. And we have an ed- uh, editorial accompanying it, uh, Pompey Young and, and myself, discussing the issues related to this. So survival bias is real. Survival bias is there. However, in our opinion, it should be more appropriately termed availability bias because you cannot give what you don't have. Now let's look at the Snyder paper when it was published. At the time, at least, that it was published, they had no plasma available in their ED. They had no thawed plasma available in their blood bank. They had no massive transfusion protocol. They were not practicing the other components of damage control resuscitation of permissive hypotension and of minimizing or limiting crystalloids. So they were, they didn't have any 
reason to even think that they could possibly achieve one-to-one in at least a timely fashion or even a higher ratio in a timely fashion. So again, they had an overwhelming availability bias, which can be called a survival bias, and it absolutely occurred, I believe, at their center. In fact, if you narrow it down and look at the times to first transfusion of products at their center, the first unit of blood was in within 20 to 30 minutes. But the median time to the first unit of plasma in that same population, the median time was almost an hour and a half, almost 90 minutes, so almost a full hour later, which, again, if you don't have thawed plasma, that's not an unreasonable turnaround time, almost an hour later that they got their plasma. So they had an overwhelming availability bias, and so their paper is absolutely true, quoting, referencing, what have you, survival bias at their institution. However, it got very, the whole one-to-one process, however, got painted with a very broad stroke with that Snyder paper, with the Scalia paper, and then now with the Memphis uh, group that's put theirs out, that all centers are the same. And so all centers are not the same because all center, not all centers have an availability bias, and not all centers' uh, studies have not taken that into account. So, so you're saying basically that they compared late to later FFP infusion. Correct. Correct. So, and, and again, I really believe the outcomes of their paper. I just don't think that you can apply it in one, that you can apply it broadly to other, other centers that have available issues and don't have an availability bias. And two, that I think it probably ought to be re-termed an availability bias as because I think it better describes the problems with survival bias because you have to live long enough for products to be thawed, for products to be mobilized, brought down from the blood bank in an incremental fashion. Again, they didn't even have, forget the ratios, forget the ratios I'm talking about, they didn't have the products available to rapidly mobilize. And that, I think, is, is the key. With Although, the admittedly, bias. when they looked at their data in the same methodology that Holcomb et al. and everybody else had looked at it, they found the same results. Mm-hmm. They only found discrepant results when they controlled for time as a covariable. Correct. Time-dependent covariates are absolutely relevant. And that's why, again, they brought out a beautiful question, but they also found their own, and in my opinion, when I looked at the, and reviewed that paper, and, and, and I remember it being discussed at the uh, uh, 2008 uh, WST meeting in Maui, when, we, when people like myself and Holcomb and Wandu Chesney got up and talked about it, we, we, we applauded their efforts and their findings, but thought that the answer was already there. They had an availability bias so how could they possibly be thinking they could ever achieve one-to-one in a timely fashion? Maybe at the 24-hour mark, and then, again, survival bias comes in. But if you don't have it proximally, it, it really harms you. And so you know, I'll bring that up for, for the sake of, of our institution. We actually found that the thought – so we recently implemented a thawed plasma program for our blood bank. And we just presented that here at AAST this week where we took it from our blood bank down to our emergency department, even though we're talking 150, 200 feet away, it was still taking a tremendous amount of time for us. Again, you've got people like myself and Holcomb, big believers in higher ratios, big believers in very proximal resuscitation, and it was taking almost 60 minutes for the first unit of plasma to go in on our patients. And we were very struck by that when we audited this. So we then moved thawed plasma down to the ER, and during that same time frame where the red cell, time to first red cell didn't change at all, it was still within 10 or uh, 12 minutes, 
We were able to reduce the median time for our mass transfusion candidates down from 59 minutes for the first unit of plasma, which was thawed even in the blood bank, down to 14 minutes. So a tremendous in, uh, increase in our shortening of time by moving it more proximally and moving it to the ED. And again, there was thawed plasma available. It was just taking physical efforts and movements of personnel, because obviously the, the bedside nurse, the bedside trauma surgeon, fellow resident, aren't gonna be able to leave and just run to the blood bank and grab these things. It was taking a significant amount of delay was, was built into this process, but by moving it more proximal, we were able to get quicker times. Now, by doing that, and we again, we presented this at ATAC, and we presented some of our more complete findings here uh, at the meeting here, we were able to show by moving it down, we reduced our overall blood product use. We reduced our red cells, we reduced our plasma in 24 hours, our cryo pla uh, and platelets. And what was very, even more interesting and I think uh, reassuring is as we're starting to kind of beat up the statistics and start to write this paper, our blood bank actually approached us and said, uh, what's, what's going on? Is there a lull in the action? Is there a, a drop-off in your admissions? What's, we've noticed a big drop-off in the amount of plasma and platelets you guys are using. And they were noticing in, in their database, in their query of the trauma, plasma, and platelet use, at the same time we were noticing it in our, through our statistical evaluation. So that was, that was reassuring. But again, that was an instance where we were having survival bias. In fact, a lot of our patients were being lost in that first hour and a half to two hours that would have never been included in that study because they never had a chance to get that first unit of plasma. And, I, and the point here uh, also is that you're still using restraint to determine who gets this product that is now incredibly readily available, be it the ABC score or whatever. Correct. So on arrival... We actually have, because again, we follow this pretty tightly, we have dedicated med students and research coordinators, research assistants, who are in our emergency department, our trauma center 24-7. And they will come up and remind whoever that attending is on call, uh, Dr. Cotton, Dr. Holcomb, Dr. Uh, Gill, uh, your ABC score is one, two, three, or four, or, or zero. And as they remind you, nudge, nudge, uh, then you're able to make a decision. Also built into that, because this is something that we also found, was when we, when we went, we'll look back, because we realized, all right, late activation is bad. Late recognition of a need for massive transfusion is bad. How do we fix it? So we came up with the ABC score, but that wasn't always universally applied, even in our center where we developed it. So then we actually approached those people that were late activators. We identified them. We obviously didn't try to single them out or make them feel bad, but we approached them and said, hey, have you tried this score? Have you tried to figure out why you're not doing it? And it was actually one of those late bloom, not late bloomers, but late activators that actually suggested, well, is there any other action item I'm doing that you can identify that might be me speaking without saying the words, activate the mass transfusion protocol? And so when we look back through kind of uh, this per particular person's path, we were noticing they were very early were calling for the ONEG. And so we started going back and we looked at it, and this was actually Nunez and colleagues that put this out in transfusion a couple of years ago, where they looked at um, the time 
if you're grabbing for O-neg in the ED, what's the risk of massive transfusion? And your massive transfusion risk is huge if you grab for O-neg out of the fridge. Not only is your risk of getting a lot of red cells increased, but the likelihood in six hours, not, not a 24-hour mark, but the likelihood of getting a, uh, 10 units of red cells and 10 units of plasma and a large amount of platelets within the first six hours of admission is dramatically increased if you just grab for the red cells out of that fridge. Based on that, I took that newfound knowledge down with me to Houston, and now on the front of our refrigerator in the emergency department, there's a big sign, laminated sign that says, trauma nurse, if you're grabbing this uh, product for the trauma attending, please remind them to activate the mass transfusion protocol at this time. So they have the ABC score, and they have the clinician gestalt with the action item, action surrogate being, give me the, the O-neg uh, immediately available. And again, now we have O-neg, and the nurses are now uh, taught when they go to get O-neg, even if they're just asked to get blood, they come back in the room with blood and plasma. And the physician has to direct them not to hang the plasma. Otherwise, they're going to get red cells and plasma hung immediately if, they're, if that clinical gestalt has gone off in that attending's head. All right, so let's get back to your, uh, to your study again. Your study also found that there was no mortality benefit to trauma exsanguination within the first 24 hours following injury. The benefit was after 24 hours. So can we discern that the impact of the TEP is more related to good critical care rather than TEP itself? So I think, I think there's a couple of things. There, there was a, a, a number difference. There was a raw difference in numbers between the 24-hour, but it was not statistically significant. Absolutely not. I think that part of that is a type two issue. I think it's a power size. I mean, if we had our sample size, if we had a little bit larger study, we probably could have uh, potentially found a benefit there. However, the whole resuscitation process, uh, I think, continues through the emergency department into the ICU and into the uh, uh, throughout their, their stay in the ICU. And so I think it does uh, show that they're, that they. ICU-related complications are less, which, again, also that paper showed. And I think those are the reasons we have the survival difference is because our ICU complications, our open abdomens, which, again, are very morbid and, and lethal issue, our ARDS rates, our multi-organ failure rates, by reducing those sequelae of a large massive transfusion and a large crystalloid transfusion administration, uh, we're able to improve our survival. So that, that combined with the potential for a type 2 error, combined with the fact that we were excluding those who were dying and were getting these, the, the, the two groups that were getting this, and we were end up probably excluding some of the people that never had a chance to make it out. Those three components are probably uh, attributing to the, the lack of a 24-hour benefit because if you look at other people's studies who have gotten it down to an hourly basis, whether it's Holcomb's Annals of Surgery paper from, I believe, 2008 um, or, or 2009, or whether you look at uh, Zinc uh, et al. Uh, from American Journal of Surgery in their paper about a year after that, they are finding that majority of the Kaplan-Meier differences, the majority of those survival curves, are happening not only in the first 24 hours, but more importantly, they're happening for six hours. So a lot of our benefit probably wasn't detected, one, because of power, sample size, and two, I still think a lot of the benefit does come from the ICU setting with respect to uh, how we resuscitate these patients. Well, certainly the, the swell to get well paradigm is very outdated. Um, on another point, 
Many studies have established an association, if not an actual causal link, between transfusion and infection slash immunosuppression. But getting back to your study, your study actually found, kind of paradoxically, that the trauma exsanguination group that got the TEP had a 58% lower incidence of sepsis-related complications, despite getting more blood products. Explain that. That is an absolute excellent question. And there are a ton of data out there and good studies showing the link between infection, inflammatory complications, organ failure, uh, and what have you, with red cells. However, we also know that every unit is a bad thing. Every time you get a transfusion, you're jacking your risk up of getting an infection, of getting organ failure, acute lung injury. And so while it seems very paradoxical, and, and, I, and I completely agree with we, that we, when we found those outcomes that we were a little bit uh, surprised to see them. However, when you narrow down and you look at the number of units that the patients received that got the exsanguination protocol versus those who got transfused off of the exsanguination protocol, the ones who got the exsanguination protocol actually ended up getting less products. And had, had Terrence O'Keefe, who also found a reduction in all the blood product use uh, at Parkland with their massive transfusion protocol, had he actually gone and looked at organ failure, it would have been very interesting to see if he would have found very similar findings. So again, we were able to reduce the number of overall products expose, exposure to the patient, and that's why we feel that we saw less infections and less organ failure complications, again, because they had less units exposed. And so again, as every unit gives you an increased risk of X process or, or Z infection, uh, we were able to reduce those. So to us, it's not as surprising when we actually take that in consideration that we actually had a reduction in, all, in those complications. And so up until now, we've been talking really mostly about FFP as a chaser to the RBCs. Let's talk about platelets. Any data out there? Data on platelets is out there. Um, it is definitely a little bit more anemic, uh, for, to keep the terminology we're using right now, than that for plasma. Uh, the plasma has been definitely a little more robust uh, and, and been studied a little more aggressively. Uh, however, in larger uh, study data sets, such again as the, uh, the Holcomb Annals of Surgery paper from a few years ago, uh, the Zinc paper uh, from American Journal of Surgery, and a few others like them, when they've actually looked at all three together, they all three seem to make a difference. Uh, if you look at the plasma and platelet benefit, if you had to pick one to be closer to one-to-one, -one, I think the data that is available would say, go with plasma and don't worry about the platelets. That said, when you have higher, higher, not necessarily saying one-to-one, -one, but when you have higher plasma and higher platelets both, those patients appear to have the best outcomes. Now, it does get back and it does beg the question of the potential for survival bias or availability bias, which is again why we set out to do this prompt study, the uh, prompt study being the prospective observational mass transfusion trial we just finished. That will hopefully give us a wealth of information of where plasma and platelets belong in our resuscitation algorithms. At least though for now, the available data that is, there, that, is a, that is out there would definitely lean that plasma gives the biggest bang for the buck, followed by platelets. But not to, not to throw the platelets out and, not, and, and dis discard them, but the fact that the plasma does seem to have the biggest bump or benefit. And again, why that is may very well be because plasma, and at least in our opinion, again, it's really kind of uh, led on to in that, in that editorial that Pompey Young and I authored this month, 
There's so much more going on with plasma. It's not just about clotting factors. It's an amazing volume expander. It's an amazing buffer. And if you think about the amount of shock that these patients come into and the acidosis that they come in with. And we know from Karen Brohe in London, we know from Mitch Cohen in San Francisco, that the shock hyperperfusion acidosis only makes the coagulopathy worse. In fact, a lot of some studies have actually shown that regardless of the level of tissue injury, if you don't have enough shock, you don't get the, a, a certain level of coagulopathy. And by giving plasma, plasma per volume has a buffering capacity 50 times that of any other standard saline or other crystalloid solution you could possibly give. So it's a tremendous volume expander. It's a great buffer. It's got the clotting factors. It, it's a lot more than just, again, all about getting the, uh, the plasma in and getting the uh, clotting factors or the, the factor levels back up to snuff. There's a lot more to it, and I think that's maybe why we see more of a benefit to giving the plasma than, than giving the, the just straight platelets. All right. And kind of as our time here slowly comes to a close, um, I think one thing that you and I have both uh, touched on today is that ultimately the Achilles heel of one-to-one remains the fact that almost all studies are retrospective in design. There are the people out there who will, in fact, still talk about survival bias. Snyder's paper was a good paper, as you said. Scalia's paper was a prospective paper, good paper. So let's talk about the prompt trial. I know it's not out yet, but what was it? When do you think you're going to publish it? Where do you think stand? Sure. So this was a 10-center, um, 10, 10-center, multi-center North American trial, uh, trauma centers across the U.S., where we felt, based on the 16-center study, which is all retrospective, uh, which, again, generated several of those papers we talked about earlier, we wanted to find and observe the massive transfusion rates, the timing, getting back to your time covariate issues, getting back to the timing of administration of each of the components. We did not alter the behavior of these uh, institutions unless there's some Hawthorne effect that we're not you know, measuring because we're physically there recording it. But what we did is at 10 centers across the U.S. over a one-year period, we put in, or a little over one-year period, we put in 24-7, 365 day coverage at the bedside, writing down every drop of fluid the patient got, got wrote down every drop of blood the patient got, the exact time the bag was hung, the time the bag finished, and imported that into a large database. And we're talking about thousands of patients. Um, entered into it in the, into the raw data set was probably closer to about 12,000 patients. When it got down to just the patients who received a massive transfusion, we were at almost 400 massive transfusions. So we were looking at patients that were predicted to get blood products and got blood products and then potentially predicted to even get a massive transfusion and looked at those. And what we've been able to find is a wealth of time-dependent variables that I think are going to be critical uh, in helping to guide us as well as setting up our planned prospective randomized trial that we're currently engaged in and trying to get the protocol completed and, and finalized. Um, and those results that you're, that you're asking about should be out. Uh, the preliminary results were presented at ATAC in August, and hopefully uh, within the next uh, several months we'll have some, uh, some data generated or at least uh, evaluated because these are things that are being submitted to journals as we speak uh, to start getting our, our, our data. I don't want to go too much into it, uh, but I, one thing I will say that I think is going to be a, a very interesting that is also probably one of the biggest benefits from the prompt trial is that we're able to hopefully 
finally, with some good data, again, 10 centers, a lot of patients, able to move away from this massive transfusion protocol definition because there's so many problems with it. It's 10 units in 24 hours, which is just doesn't capture it because 10 units in 24 hours doesn't capture the guy that gets nine units and dies in 60 minutes. But the patient that gets the 10th unit at 23 hours and 59 minutes gets in, included as a massive. Those are two different patient populations, and I would argue, and I think no one would argue back, that the patient that died uh, within 60 minutes was much sicker that just got nine units. So by moving that time point up, by looking at the transfusion intensity, if you will, uh, the number of units over a, a smaller increment of time, we're able to get a better definition. And that definition is what we've been working on, which is that of substantial bleeding definition. And that substantial bleeding is what you're gonna see hopefully start to move forward as a new definition or a better definition that we're gonna be using in the prompt trial uh, database. Well, not just that. I mean, I think of the definition of 10 units over 24 hours or six hours or however many hours, it, it, it ignores the FFP component and removes coagulopathy from one's kind of uh, mentality. It shouldn't be 10 units or however many units of RBCs. It should be combined uh, blood uh, based colloid resuscitation, FFP, RBC platelets. Absolutely. And that, that's exactly what I've uh, preached for a while was maybe it is 10, but shouldn't it be 10 of everything? And then maybe it shouldn't be 24 hours. Perhaps it's 10 units of whatever in the first six hours. Um, because again, I think, I think you and I would both agree that if, if these protocols work, if drug X that comes out is so hemostatic and so amazing that it works, what are you going to use for your definition of whether that patient was sick? Uh, because mass transfusion really doesn't hit it. Again, like we talked about earlier, over half of the, or at least half of our mass transfusion protocol activations in Houston, almost half of them uh, don't get them, uh, the traditional 10 units. They will stop after the first six to eight units of red cells, but they'll have also gotten six units of plasma. So they won't technically be defined as a mass transfusion, exactly. but they were sick. Yep. Yeah. But if, our pro if these processes work, we need to be able to gauge them. And, again, I think that's where that beautiful uh, paper that we were talking about from Vox Sanguis a minute ago was the Borgman paper was great because it talked about prediction of massive transfusion. Who cares if they actually get it? They came in, they were sick enough, and predicted to get it. Therefore, that was an appropriate patient. And I think that's also going to be huge, not only for the studies that are coming out, but it's also going to be huge to guide future studies for enrolling for, again, brand new drug X that's going to save the world and stop bleeding, you're going to have to apply it to the appropriate population because there's so many studies, including the NOVA 7 trial and other studies, where the patients just weren't bleeding. They had some blood loss, they got some blood, but they weren't ones that woke you up at night and kept you know, Dr. Serrani at the bedside, they were ones that you were like, eh, and you were able to go back to the call room and they had a unit or two hung. Those unfortunately slipped in because of the language of those enrollments and inclusion criteria at some of these studies. And by better defining these high-risk patients, these predicted to get a massive by TASH or ABC or whatever it is, these predicted to get these massives is, I think, going to be a huge thing. And I think that's what's going to help guide some of these future studies and get better enrollment, cleaner enrollment, and enrollment more in the spirit of the study, you know, the patient that's really bleeding to death that we want to know about. Yeah, and in fact, uh, we, we talked with uh, Rick Dutton, one of the authors of the control trial, um, uh, regarding 
problems uh, involved with enrollment and waiver of consent and the ultimate population that was enrolled in that trial. Well, this has been a uh, fascinating discussion, I think, of the role of one-to-one RBC to FFP, the role of the blood bank, friend or foe, uh, push or pull, as they say, uh, in trauma care. I'm going to put a little uh, plug out there, uh, and I'm going to quote uh, my uh, partner, uh, Pat Riley, uh, who uh, at the East meeting last year admonished the audience that uh, if you don't have time to read, simply befriend Brian Cotton. Uh, Brian has a uh, <clears throat> robust series of uh, emails that he sends out on a uh, monthly basis, uh, one directed to acute care surgery, one directed to surgical critical care, and one directed to trauma with uh, kind of a what you should be reading this month list. And uh, I think for any uh, audience members out there who um, don't have time to peruse 100 journals, 150, yeah. 150 journals on a monthly basis. Uh, Brian can help you out with that. And uh, just be aware of the onslaught of articles you're going to get, and then you'll feel bad about reading only, a, what, 10%, I guess, in my, my case. We've been talking today with uh, Dr. Brian Cotton regarding the role of the blood bank in resuscitating the severely injured and exsanguinating patient. I'd like to thank you again for taking the time to share your views with us and compliment you on your ongoing work in this field. This concludes another edition of the East TraumaCast. For copyright information and disclaimers, please visit us at east.org. For the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, I'm Dr. Bob.